All right, let us, uh, let us begin our, our meeting. And we always begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts this morning. And as we go through for the next ten weeks in the study of the book of the prophet Daniel, help us not only to understand what the book is saying, but what the meaning and the message is, uh, because that's far, far more important. So we ask your blessing on us and help us to open our hearts and our minds and our ears uh, to hear what you have to say to us through Holy Scripture. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. All right. Let's begin uh, talking about the prophet Daniel. Okay. Uh, technically, he is not really a prophet in the traditional sense, not uh, in the same way that um, Jeremiah and uh, Isaiah and Ezekiel and some of the others were truly prophets who left us uh, great information, uh, great teachings, great writings. We call them the literary prophets. But when the uh, Old Testament was put together, the book of the prophet Daniel had been in existence for somewhere around 200 years, and the people who brought the Old Testament together in the latter part of the second century B.C. really didn't know where to put it, um, because it's part history, it's part instruction, uh, it's part prophecy, it's part um, apocalyptic language, which I'll be explain a little later. So it's a little of everything. So they decided, well, it fits probably more among the prophets than anyone else. Uh, but as I said, it technically uh, is not um, in line with the other prophets. And the other thing about the book of Daniel is that uh, we are not certain that there was even a person by the name of Daniel. And that's not unusual. There are other books uh, of the prophets uh, that we have no record of the individual who actually wrote the books. And that's true with many of the books of, of the Old Testament. And even when you go into the New Testament, uh, the official name of each of the Gospels is the Gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke. And John is an exception, in which I'll explain in a minute, uh, but when we say according to, that implies that the actual writing of the gospel as we have it today was done by somebody else later. In other words, took the information that was preached by each of those uh, four evangelists and then put the gospel uh, in writing together and we can understand that when you read, for example, the Gospel of Matthew, which is so well structured uh, for uh, teaching and for study purposes, that it probably was not written by a poor fisherman uh, or a poor tax collector. Uh, so all three of those, what we call synoptic Gospels, uh, were probably written by uh, somebody else. And that's why we say the gospel according to 
the teaching, uh, the basic ideas, the basic comments, the words, etc., probably did come uh, from those four or three men, uh, but the actual writing down probably came from someone else. And that's what we have with the prophet Daniel. The first six chapters are complete stories in themselves. And if you recall, for those of you who uh, remember, uh, back we had a magazine many years ago called the Saturday Evening Post, and there were uh, other similar types of magazines that would have stories running from week to week or sometimes from month to month. And they would be related in some way, but they would be complete stories in themselves, each one. And that's what we have here. Each chapter, uh, each of the six first chapters in the book of Daniel are, you might say, independent stories. Probably written sometime in the uh, either third century or the early part of the second century B.C. And then they were revised uh, later on for reasons which I'll get into a little later. Chapter 7 through 12, well, 7 through 11 at least, are what we call apocalyptic language. And when people hear that term apocalyptic language, they immediately think of gloom and doom. And that is not really what the word means. The word simply means revealing. It is uh, a Greek word that has come down to us through the Greek translation of the Bible, and it means to reveal. Reveal something that is hidden within the storyline uh, other than what the words might say. All right? And I'll explain that when we get into it. The uh, book of Ezekiel, and it just so happens that the book that you will be getting as part of your registration fee and the one that we will be using, such as this here, contains both the prophet Ezekiel and the prophet Daniel because they are related in style only. All right? In style only. Uh, there are some passages that sort of line up, you might say, with each other, but they are kind of related in style, all right? And that's why they are together. But we are only going to be studying the book of Daniel, okay? Um, you have that same situation in many of the other books of that type, okay? But the book of Revelation in the New Testament is very similar because it is also uh, apocalyptic language used, but much more extensively and much more difficult to decide, uh, decipher. Uh, but we're going to leave that alone because I feel that uh, the book of Revelation from the New Testament should only be studied by somebody who really understands and has a very good knowledge of the rest of the Bible, all right? Not just uh, jump into the last book of the Bible. And it's in the last, it is the last book of the Bible for a couple reasons. It really talks about the end times, 
and not necessarily the end of the world, uh, but the end of many different uh, situations, you might say. And it was also the last book written by any of the apostles, the Apostle John. So with that, I want to get right into some of the details here. Um, Again, apocalyptic language is something that says one thing but means another. All right? And if you know the history behind the subject matter, the reader then should be able to determine what the real meaning is. And what I want to do is to get into kind of the history behind the prophet Daniel because it's an interesting history, um, a rather sort of dynamic history in the period of the Jewish faith in the second century B.C. I hope you've all read, you know, my Rembrandt up here, so I'm going to erase it, okay? Because I want to get into and show you by a little bit of a diagram the history and the time period covered by this book of Daniel. Okay. Can everyone see this board now reasonably well? All right. The book was written in approximately a hundred and let's say a hundred and fifty years BC. During that period of time, it was when the remnants of the Greek Empire was ruling Palestine, where Israel and Jerusalem are situated. The Greek Empire, established, of course, by Philip the Great and then uh, his son Alexander the Great, uh, was a magnificent machine, you might say, that conquered almost all of what we call Mideast Europe and Asia, right? The Mideast countries, and it extended all the way across uh, to Rome, not quite as much, but uh, that far, all across North Africa, uh, way into almost as far as India going in the other direction, all right? But when Alexander the Great died at a very young age, roughly 33 years old in the early part of the 4th century B.C., his empire quickly broke up because it was so extensive. It was ruled by uh, a number of different people, 10 to be exact, 10 different people, 10 different regions and so forth. And so it broke up. But the thing that was maintained was that Alexander the Great and his successors, these ten men over these ten regions, enforced the Greek culture 
on the people of all of the conquered areas. Now, in some ways that was good, but over a period of time that turned into something bad for the people. The Greek culture was something that was far above Roman culture of the time. It was far above any other culture in, well, the known world, you might say. It <coughs> raised the level of education. Uh, it raised the level of women. Uh, it raised the level of uh, books and learning and language. Uh, it just brought in a lot of things. But as it began to break apart, which all regimes of that kind will do eventually, uh, the individuals overruling the certain areas, particularly this one, Palestine, uh, became dictators. And they took what they felt was the best of this culture and forced it on the people. Well, we happen to have a person by the name of Antiochus, lovely name, isn't it? Can't you imagine being called Antiochus? Okay. And in this case, the fourth, meaning that there were four of them. All right. Because we are talking about second century um, B.C., and this is 150 uh, more years after Alexander the Great's death. And so there was Antiochus, Antiochus II, the third, and this is the fourth. Okay? Nepotism, you might say, because it was always handed down among the family. All right. He became a very heavy dictator. All right. In fact, he added on to his own name, I think I misspelled that somehow. That's all right. Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes. In other words, here I am, folks. I'm the greatest. You know, sounds like uh, Cassius Clay before he became uh, uh, Muhammad Ali. All right, I am the greatest. And in some ways he was. He did a lot of good things. But what we are concerned with here is he forced not only the Greek culture on the people, but he would not allow them to practice their own faith. And that is what develops within the Jewish people and becomes a real thorn on their side. Because the Jewish people, as you all know, I'm sure, uh, worship their faith, worship the laws, as much as they worship God. And of course, that was part of their problem as well. But nevertheless, he forces the Greek culture on these people and insists that they cannot practice their own faith and he must, um, they must abide by whatever he says. Now, that of course creates a lot of problems within Israel. 
northern Israel because it was a much more cosmopolitan area. I don't mean necessarily big cities and so forth, but the people because it was, or it contained, northern Israel contained what was called the part of the Silk Road, and travelers from both the east and the west would go through there, and of course you had many people from many different cultures uh, come in and establish businesses and homes and so forth there. So they welcomed a lot of this Greek culture, and they could care less about the Jewish faith. Uh, but the people particularly around Jerusalem and in the province of Judah were very much against what this guy did. In fact, he was so adamant in enforcing their uh, or his ideas upon them that he desecrated the temple and had prostitutes come in and, you know, do a lot of things, and even worship uh, false gods by sacrificing animals and so forth to these false gods. He really desecrated the temple something awful. And if you really want to know all of those details, you can go into the Bible and read uh, the books of Maccabees, First and Mac- uh, Second Maccabees. And all of those details are in uh, the first and second book of Maccabees. Okay. Um, what happens, of course, is that it sets up a lot of tension between the people and the rulers. And they rebel. It created what we call the, the Jewish Wars, and uh, the, you all probably heard of the former Jewish uh, site of Masada and all of that. Uh, we don't get into that, but if you're interested, uh, again, read First and Second Maccabees, and you'll get uh, a more direct opinion of it. But what we want to have you understand, and what I've done in your flyer here is give you a three or four page synopsis of this particular person. Okay, so if you'll turn to that for a minute. In the back of your handout, you have this... uh, You have this section on Antiochus IV, Epiphanes. And what I'd like to have you do, not now, of course, but uh, between now and next week, read over this and become familiar with it. It's not, you know, I'm not going to give you a test or anything on it. This is for your benefit uh, because you have to kind of understand who this boogeyman really was, uh, in order to understand the stories within this book of the prophet Daniel, okay? Because Daniel was sort of the spirit behind the rebellion of the Jewish people. And it was written, the 
book of Daniel was written to give these people hope. As I said before, the first six chapters they were already familiar with. They're nice little stories, um, and they do kind of relate to this subject because, remember, this had been in existence for 150 years or so. All right? Um, But it was intended to give the people hope, to let them know to hang in there and stick to what the Jewish teachings were at the time. It's important that you kind of get that connection, that the book was not intended to scare anybody because the reader understood what was being said. The uh, the part that becomes a little difficult to understand is that for the writer's protection, I do with a pen or uh, for the writer's protection, the writers of these the book of Daniel, and we believe there was more than one, set the storyline back into the sixth century BC in the time of the Babylonian exile. The story itself has nothing to do with with uh, the actual Babylonian exile, but the, the storyline, what is being given to the reader, is put back in that time frame to get by the censors, you might say, of the second century. So you've got to kind of keep this in mind it's really talking about the problems of the second century, but the storyline is back in the sixth century. Okay? And that's why Nebuchadnezzar and uh, Cyrus and some of those people, uh, Belshazzar, etc., which are all real sec- uh, sixth century uh, people, are in there. But the storyline is intended to cover up what is really being said and the meaning. All right. You got that so far? Okay. All right. Um. (laughs) Good, good. All right. Now, you might say, well, what has that all got to do with us today? All right. Aren't we today being forced to do things that we really don't agree with. Uh, Just take the technology that has been developed in the past five or ten years. It has changed our lifestyle tremendously. And we are being forced beyond our control really to accept things that uh, ten years ago we wouldn't have accepted whatsoever. Now, there is no one person like this guy behind all of that, but it is, you know, Hollywood, uh, it is uh, a lot of manufacturers of electronic devices, it is the sports world who are making uh, great heroes out of sports people, except for that poor guy that made the mistake uh, during the Super Bowl game, you know, you know, he's toast, but... uh, Now, he'll recover. I mean, he was young and he made some errors. Uh, You know, there's no one person that is doing that. But you can see what society is doing today. The same things 
that this guy was enforcing upon the Jewish people. All right, even taking food. Have you noticed that when you go to a high-class restaurant, they'll serve you a big plate, but everything is packed on top of each other? You know, that's because they're trying to make an art out of serving food. Well, when I go to a fancy restaurant, I'm not too care concerned about how it's piled on top of each other, as long as it tastes good. You know, uh, but you know that's not the style these days. You got to accept that. And then they always have a twig of rosemary or some darn thing right in the middle of it, which I don't like, but, you know, that's the way it goes, all right? But you see what's being, what's happening? Those kinds of things are being forced upon us, whether we like it or not. And when you say, one time I did say to uh, somebody in a, in a restaurant, the server, that I didn't like it all that way, I wanted it a certain way. And they, you know, they couldn't understand why I didn't like it that way. My goodness, that's an art form. Well, I'm not there because I want art. I want good food. Okay. Um, but we have a number of those kinds of things. You can't even turn on television today uh, unless you turn on the Golden Girls or something that, you know, uh, Happy Days or something that came from 15, 20 years back. Um, we are being forced to accept things that really goes against the grain. And since there is no alternative, we say, oh, well, I guess i got to get used to it. Well, that's because Catholics, particularly, will not stand up for what they believe and do something about it. And we should. We should. So, when you put those all together, that's why we are teaching this particular book of the Old Testament. It is to show what could happen in our time, not by any individual like this, but by big segments of society, particularly the entertainment um, segment, the sports segment, and politics. My God, politics is forcing things upon us uh, in a very sly way that you, you know, you have to stop and, and say, well, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, that's not right. But we as individuals will not stand up for our own rights and do that. And we should. Because the same kind of thing could easily happen when you let things get out of hand. Alright. So, during the next few weeks, we're going to be getting into the details uh, of this guy, and it's important that you understand who he is and what the influence he had on Jewish culture as well as on Greek culture. Now, there are many, many different books being uh, written on this particular subject, the book of Daniel. Here's, here's an excellent one, uh, a little more extensive, a little more information than you probably would want uh, to get into, but 
it contains a lot more details. What I'll try to do is give you verbally a lot of the details from this book to supplement what's in this book. All right. This is the one that you'll be given as part of your registration. Any questions so far? Uh, yes, Dale? Which book now? This one? <laughs> uh, this is by Alexander Dilella. D-I-L-L. No, D-I-L-E-L-L-A. And it's published by New City Press. And this one is, uh, let's see. This is older than I thought, 1997. Alexander D. Lella. Now, I hope all of you, uh, not so much today, will bring your own Bible with you because there are times when we will go into other parts of the Bible to show you corresponding uh, writings or similar writings from others. Now, one of the other writings will be Ezekiel, which is already in this book, so for that you won't need an, another Bible, but I do recommend that you bring... Um, a small uh, Bible with you, all right? Because many of you have not uh, had the chance to read up on the book of Daniel, we'll kind of have to start next week. But I think I'd like to go through the first chapter to give you an idea. of, And, and I'll just read it here. It's very brief. <coughs> It'll give you an idea of the style. And what we'll then be able to do is to tie some of these things together. Okay. It's only uh, two and a half pages long, so if you'll bear with me in, in my reading style here. This First one has to do with the food test, you might say. All right. Now we're talking about not only Daniel, and we're talking about Daniel being back in Babylon. All right. Back in the sixth century. And that is because, as I said before, the writer has put everything back into a time period prior to the Greek Empire, and it was intended to uh, get past the uh, censors, you might say, so that the guy didn't get his head chopped off or whatever. Okay, And Daniel has three companions, and they are exiles in Babylon as far as the story is concerned. Now, the three companions, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know, there's a nice little song about that. Don't ask me to sing it, please. Um, but that is the Greek name that they are given, all right? They come, all their names have been changed from uh, Hebrew names to 
Greek names. All right. And it says, in the third century of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came and laid siege to Jerusalem. The Lord handed over to him Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and some of the vessels of the temple of God, which he carried off to the land of Shinar. Shinar is the former name of Babylon. And placed uh, these uh, vessels in the temple treasury of his god, small g. The king told Ashpenaz, his chief chamberlain, to bring in some of the Israelites of royal blood and of the nobility. So the king, Nebuchadnezzar now, we're talking about the Babylonian king, is asked to bring in uh, some of the uh, young men from the Jewish exiles. These were Slaves, you might say, or prisoners, but not slaves in uh, the sense that we think of slavery uh, in the Americas. Most of the captives that were taken by Nebuchadnezzar back in the early part of the 6th century were more like indentured servants. They were the uh, people that could do the people of Babylon some good. Uh, the teachers, the craftsmen, uh, shopkeepers, people that were educated, uh, people that could be servants, or people that could be craftsmen, that kind of thing. Okay? They were treat- treated reasonably well. Okay? But nevertheless, they were forced to accept all of the things uh, of uh, that particular culture. Okay? Uh, again, the king told Ashpenaz, his chief chamberlain, to bring in some of the Israelites of royal blood and of the nobility, young men without any defect, handsome, intelligent, and wise, quick to learn, and prudent in judgment. See, those were all marks of, of uh, status and so forth, which was very important to the people at such time. Such as could take their place in the king's palace. And they were uh, taught the language and literature of the Chaldeans, okay, uh, which is another term for the region and language used at that time. After three years training, they were to enter the king's service. The king allotted them a daily portion of food and wine from the royal table. Among these were men of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief chamberlain changed their names, uh, Daniel to Belshazzar, Hananiah to Shadrach, Mishael to Meshach, and Azariah to Abednego. Don't ask me to pronounce those again, eh, please. <laughs> but Daniel was resolved not to defile himself with the king's food or wine, so that he begged the chief chamberlain, Uh, to spare him this defilement. Though God had given Daniel the favor and sympathy of the chief chamberlain, he nevertheless nevertheless said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord, the king. It is he who allotted your food and drink. If he sees that you look wretched by comparison with the other young men of your age, you will endanger my life with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, 
whom the chief chamberlain had put in charge of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. <clears throat> Please test your servants for ten days. Give us vegetables. See, even back in that time they had vegans. Okay. <laughs> to eat water, <laughs> vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then see how we look in comparison with the other young men who eat from the royal table and treat your servants according to what you see. He acceded to this request and tested them for ten days. After ten days, they looked healthier and better fed than any of the young men who ate from the royal table. So the steward, you know, there's a message there too, you know. <laughs> so the steward continued to take away the food and wine they were to receive and gave them vegetables. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and proficiency in all literature and science, and to Daniel the understanding of all visions and dreams. Yeah. Uh, to the end of the time the king had specified for their preparation, the chief chamberlain brought them before Nebuchadnezzar. When the king had spoken with all of them, none was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so they entered the king's service. In any question of wisdom or prudence which the king put to them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his kingdom. Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus' reign. Well, we're not certain of that because there are a number of historical inaccuracies in this, but that's not important, okay? Remember, it was written in the 6th century about times and events back in the 4th century. And, of course, the person writing this was not interested in historical accuracy. It was trying to get the point across, okay? So, can you see from this, the king, in this case, Nebuchadnezzar is forcing the Jewish people to accept food from the Greek culture and they are trying to refuse it. All right. You have to kind of look beyond some of the, the words and the terms back into what is really being said here. All right. Now, that's the end of chapter one. Very simple in itself. All right. Uh, they, these four men were brought into the service of the king. They were trained for four years. Their names were changed. Uh, they learned the language. They learned the methods and the times of the court in order to serve the court. All right? And, of course, they win with flying colors above all the others. All right? And this is the hero. You know, my hero, Daniel. Okay? And, of course... Daniel carries this story throughout the book. Even though in some of the chapters he's not even mentioned. For example, the, uh, the story about the burning furnace where the three men are put into the furnace. Daniel isn't anywhere to be found. Okay, so we don't know what happened to him. He wasn't put into the burning furnace. Uh, but 
don't misunderstand those these stories simple as they may be have a great influence on Christianity as well as on Judaism before it. For example, you've heard in the various Gospels where Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. That comes out of the book of Daniel. That's the first time it's used in reference to a a real person. That is why it's intended to reflect here somebody who is not an angel but above the angels. All right. And that is why Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, because the people to whom he is speaking know what that means. They're accepting that term as somebody who is above the angels uh, and not an angel himself. So who could be above the angels but God himself? And it's a disguised way of Jesus saying, I am the Son of God, which he does not say to the general public. It is not really said until the day of his death, the Pilate. So by understanding uh, this backwards and forwards type of thing, you'll begin to see that there is much more to the story than what the words are actually saying. I hope you've already seen that. The food that is being forced upon these four men is rejected, uh, and what they would prefer is something plain and simple, such as their own uh, style of food, vegetables, uh, and plain water rather than rich wine from the king's table. It's not so much the food itself. It is the rejection of what is being forced upon them that we're really talking about. Any other questions? Or any questions at all? Uh, Well, I'm going to end the the class here today a little early because you haven't had a chance. What I'd like you to do, for those of you who haven't already turned in their registration forms, uh, is to give it to Michelle. Do you want to take it back there? And uh, Michelle will uh, give you not only the the book that is uh, goes along with that. Yeah. But let's end it with a prayer before we get into all of that. And then you can leave uh, once you've turned in your registration form. All right. In the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time and we ask your blessing that you help us to understand what this book is really trying to say to us and how it could influence us in rising up against some of the pressures that society is being forced to accept today. And that is what it's really intended. In addition, help us to then understand some of the beautiful prayers that are in this book that we use today and are also used by the Jewish people. So we thank you for this time together. 
We thank you and praise you in all things in Jesus' name.